Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline's not joining us today, but it, we are recording this on a beautiful day in April, um, Easter Saturday, actually. And it's um, I'm looking out on a lovely, lovely blue sky here in Iowa. And we have a guest who's going to take us around, halfway around the world today, Vanessa Waugh. She's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and the author of the novel A River of Stars and a short story collection, Deceit and Other Possibilities. She's a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellows, received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and many other awards. She's filed stories from China, Burma, South Korea, and elsewhere, and her work has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. She has taught recently at the Warren Wilson MFA Program for Writers and the Sewanee Writers Conference and lives in San Francisco Bay Area with her family. And she's here today to talk about her new novel, which is one of the most anticipated books of 2022, Forbidden City. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Vanessa. Thanks for having me on. Now, Forbidden City is a historical novel set in China before, during, and after the Cultural Revolution. Is this your first um, time exploring that era? Yes, it's my first historical novel, uh, though through a quirk of publishing, it's the first novel I wrote, but the third one I'm publishing. So. But we can talk a bit more about that uh, we, yes. in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely will. So um, what drew you to write about this era? And I, I got to tell you, I'm, you know, I've always been fascinated by um, 20th century Chinese history. When I was a young girl, young woman, girl, teenager, I read a lot of Pearl Buck novels, which mm -hmm. were set maybe, I don't I think they're set in the really early 1900s. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just, it just seems like there's so much going on here. But compared to, like, certainly in our, in the United States publishing world, compared to World War II historical novels, there's not nearly as much written about this, this era and this, yeah. this place in the world. So, yeah, definitely. I think in the U.S. there's there's far less um, in all kinds of media about the Pacific theater, let's say, of World War II. Um, but and and I'll I, I guess I have two thoughts. Um, first off, I'm the American-born daughter of Chinese immigrants, and my parents were born in 1930s China. And throughout their childhood, they were always moving. Every sometimes it seemed like every week or every few months ahead of Japanese invaders, and later on um, when the Civil War resumed, um, at, at, you know, they, they, and they eventually had to leave uh, and left for the island of Taiwan after the communists uh, came to power. So that part of it was in my family history. Um, but and, and so I'd always been very curious about that, you know, what followed um, after my, my, my uh, parents left China. Um, but what sort of really sparked Forbidden City I was watching a documentary about a decade and a half ago, and it was about China, and up pops this photo of Chairman Mao. And he's surrounded by giggling teenage girls who look like 
bobby foxers. They're wearing like tight fitted blouses and sweaters. Um, and it turned out he was a fan of ballroom dancing. He actually learned um, from an American journalist back uh, during in the, in the late thirties. And, um, and so he had a, spe- he had special troops of young women who partnered with him, not only um, on the dance floor, but in the bedroom. And, you know, I tried to look for more information and, there's a memoir by the chairman's physician, by Mao's physician, and he says, oh, for these women, it was the most exhilarating experience of their life. Um, but I knew it had to be more complicated than that, um, especially for those who kept, were kept on as his companions. They were called clerks or nurses, but they would read his correspondence. Uh, they would help translate for him when his speech became garbled. So I was just so intensely curious about what it must have been for one of these young women um, who, you know, were so were, were in the inner circle of a man, um, they'd been raised to believe a god. And were you able to find much information about them? Not really. Nothing. You know, there were there were mentions of them in, in various news articles, um, but there was nothing that really got at the rhythm of their daily life or what went on behind closed doors or just how they managed to keep their place beside him. Um, and I know, you know, there's, I, I mentioned uh, one of them in my author's acknowledgement um, uh, or in the author's note of my novel and there's others, but, and then yet I also know there must surely be others that don't even merit a footnote, right? That never end up in the official record. And I think that's where fiction can really flourish where the record ends. And how much influence might they have actually had? You know, they were, uh, it, they had the ear of the, not just the chairman, but all of the top officials. Yeah, I mean, and to the extent that uh, a, a top cotter was otherwise really sort of separated from the people they were governing, here were these young women who could say, well, this is what my life was like, or this is what I'm interested in, or, um, in particular, with my character, the chairman, who's, who's based upon Mao Zedong, um, you know, he's a man who's revered, beloved, yet almost totally isolated and lonely. And so in that way, these companions could could influence, um, you know, anything from the chairman's mood to perhaps he, you know, a, a casual remark that one of them makes could then in turn get the chairman to, to act in a certain way. And of course, he might always believe like, oh, this is entirely my own decision. But that, you know, if this is someone you're spending day after day with, um, there's, you know, surely they must have some sort of influence. And that was something uh, I wanted to explore in my novel that someone who, you know, the, the subtle ways that someone could um, influence even the course of the cultural revolution. Right. I think, Vanessa, before we go too much further, if you could sort of give us a, a, a very short historical synopsis of what, what's happening during the time of this book in China. Sure. So uh, the novel begins on the eve of the Cultural Revolution, and uh, my protagonist, May, is selected for a mysterious duty in the capital. Um, and when she leaves her village and arrives in the capital, that's when she realizes that she's part of this um, troupe that uh, dances with the chairman and other top cotter. Um, but China itself 
was amid turmoil. Um, just a few years earlier, uh, there had been the Great Leap Forward, where uh, Mao Zedong had hoped to um, rapidly industrialize the country. Um, but this led to mass starvation, uh, to famine, because of all these sort of unproven agricultural techniques. Um, people you know, were melting down their pots and pans to try and pr produce iron. But of course, that sort of iron is, is useless for industrial uses. Um, and so at that time, Mao sort of stepped back from daily governance because he was really seen as like, this, this was a huge mistake. Um, and so by the time um, my novel begins, uh, the chairman and his wife, the madam, are sort of thinking like, what is going to be my legacy? It certainly can't be the, the, the great leap forward. How can, I, how can I come back to power again? And so this is the fray that um, it may steps into. Um, and at first, the, the chairman has her in mind for a certain uh, duty, a, a prank, let's say, but um, she begins, you know, to come into her own and, uh, you know, figures out how to both survive the, the lake palaces and also how to uh, save her own life. And Forbidden City is, what's that referred to? So... Forbidden City, uh, the tourist spot that many of us have visited, was the former imperial palaces, the, the country's seat of power. But you know, once the communists came to power, it became a museum in 1925. But next door is a place called Zongnanhai, which I call the Lake Palaces in my novel because it refers to these two very large man-made lakes that are, that are the center of this complex. So in the past, uh, it used to be sort of a pleasure gardens for the emperor. But with the Forbidden City uh, turned into a museum, Zongnanhai is the true Forbidden City now. It is, it's got these high red walls. It's where the leaders live. There's, there's um, you know, the most important government offices are there. Uh, it's not open to the public. Um, but for, for May, this is, um, the Forbidden City refers to the Lake Palaces, this this hidden, secluded world. Um, and it also refers to the chairman himself. Um, this, this, you know, again, someone who she's been raised to, you know, call great leader, whose uh, portrait is hanging everywhere and in, in their own home. Um, and yet she is circling and circling him, trying to find a way in. And what exactly were the Red Guard and the Gang of Four, and how did they all fit into this? Sure. So Red Guard, uh, it started, it was a movement that started among middle schoolers, if you can believe it, and high schoolers, um, and, and then college students, um, in which they felt they needed to protect the chairman, and only they could carry on the revolution, that it had you know, they, they believed that the country was drifting too far um, to the right and they, they would be willing to kind of serve as his troops and calling out uh, people who were, you know, hidden capitalists or, um, but of course what happened was it, you know, you know, it spread to like factories, to, you know, to adults and it turned, you know, for all the claims of, um, of idealistic claims, it became a way to settle scores between neighbors, between students and teachers. Um, and, you know, there was a, there was a lot of um, violence 
that broke out um, in this, you know, struggle sessions where people had to confess to crimes they didn't necessarily commit. Um, and, and so the Gang of Four actually doesn't appear in the book because um, that didn't happen until till later, um, till the latter end of the Cultural Revolution. But that involved, um, that, that was a critique of uh, Madame Mao and three of her sort of compatriots who, um, at, towards the end, they needed to blame someone for the chaos that had engulfed the country, and they, they, they pointed the finger at her. Um, so although that terminology did not appear in Forbidden City, we see the roots of the chair, uh, of the madame's ambitions and how she's willing to, um, you know, that she's been suppressed um, for so long. Um, in my novel, and, you know, this is inspired on true events, um, Madame Mao was only allowed to marry him um, because she promised uh, the other party leaders that she would stay out of public life for, for 25 years. And so by the time the Cultural Revolution rolled around, she was more than ready to try and take her place in the spotlight that she felt uh, so long denied to her. Because she had been famous before. Yes, she'd been an actress in Shanghai. Um, yeah. And when she made her way to that rebel stronghold and uh, they, the romance bloomed, but you know, party leaders were like, this is not a suitable wife for the chairman. And oh, by the way, he left his second wife for her. So um, because, you know, and, and I'm sure the party leaders thought 25 years from now, no one's going to listen to that, that old woman. She'll, you know, or she'll lose her ambition, but she cultivated it all that time. Yeah, I just, I just read the part about where May's learning this about, because people didn't, don't really know, or apparently didn't know much about the personal history of the chairman. He was such a God figure, but his personal life was not known by the people and she's so she's learning this and she's like oh yeah they probably figured no no one would listen to a woman i think the way you were to who who no longer had her bloom or was past her bloom or something so yeah. that there was a lot of ingrained misogyny um mm -hmm. in in that culture as well and you know these young girls coming it, it doesn't seem like anybody thought that they needed any protection at all. Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's fear on the part of uh, May's family when they're, she's being sent off to the big city. They're not quite sure what duties uh, in, for the party it might entail. Um, but they knew that young women on their own away from home could be vulnerable, right? And, but, but the question is, was it that they didn't care or that they knew they were sort of powerless to, to stop either, you know, the systems in place that would take in these young women. And maybe these young women also thought I want a different life than the one handed down to me. I'll, I'm, I'm it, like young women everywhere who, who've left home, um, but not knowing what sort of darkness might lie where they're headed. Yeah. What the dangers are, but when they get yeah. there, you know, the, people, their teachers and their, you know, people who are supposedly taking care of them really, I, I, it's just, they're not even considered, their needs are not really considered at all. No, it's all for the sake of the revolution or, yeah. Yeah. So tell me how you went about, I mean, the, the detail in this is so 
lifelike. I mean, <laughs> you really put the reader in this small village in China, in the Forbidden City, in this this cultural troupe with this young, surrounded by these really vicious young women, some of them. And how did you go about researching to be able to get those details? Oh, thank you so much. Um, so it's, it was a long process, um, but I have a background as a journalist. Uh, I've been writing about Asia and diaspora for more than 20 years. And so I had a very firm understanding of the culture as a reporter and as also someone um, who, who's from a Chinese immigrant family. And the first time uh, I, ha I had an opportunity to report from China for the first time in 2004 for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I visited small villages um, outside of, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, in Southern China and, and went to factories where I met young women who'd ridden a train, you know, three day, for three days to, 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 to take their first job and to seek adventure. So I kind of, you know, that's a different era than uh, in my novel, but it was essentially that sort of character, like someone who's willing to leave home, willing to, um, to, to, to dream of something else. And so, um, and then, so there was that. And then I returned in 2008 to do reporting. At that point, I'd already begun writing the novel. So um, I went to villages outside of Beijing where I interviewed people who'd, uh, grannies who lived through the Cultural Revolution. Um, I also um, kind of went to Shanghai, you know, the Forbidden City, the Summer Palace, all sorts of places uh, that my character would end up um, tracing her path as she made her way, makes her way across China. Um, and, you know, scores of books and, and articles. Um, and, but I will say this, at a certain point, there's, I believe that research should be the floor and not the ceiling um, to, to my fiction because in, in the end it's, it's fiction. And um, I will say this, I, you know, finished a draft of the novel and I went to Hong Kong and I, I went to these mud flats where May ends up and I wrote the scene before ever going there. But then when I had an opportunity to visit, I looked and it was, it was almost eerie because it was as if, it was as if it was as if I had willed it into being. It was as I had portrayed it, even though I had never been there. And I really do think, you know, every author needs to take that empathetic leap of imagination. And I think that's what helped me um, create her character, or even the chairman's character. You know, someone who's so iconic. Um, you see him on the cover of the Little Red Book, or uh, little statuettes or, you know, he, he's, his, his picture is really well known, but who was he as a person? And um, I, two ways, two things that helped me kind of get into who he was or his body, let's say, as a body in motion was um, he was a, you know, loved ballroom dancing. And where I went to college, it was one of the most popular classes on campus. So I took it <laughs> freshman and sophomore year. So I, I kind of knew what it was like to hear the opening bars, to swing around the room, that, that feeling of gravity and, and flying. Um, and Mao was also a big swimmer. And as I portray in my book, there was a, a momentous swim um, in the Yangtze River that kind of showed he was back, he was vigorous. Um, and, and I'm also a swimmer. So again, all the ways, even though it's a character from another 
country, era, gender, all of that, um, I, I think authors do whatever we can to, to put ourselves in the body, to put ourselves in the mind of another. Absolutely. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Vanessa Wall, author of Forbidden City. So you mentioned that this was the first book you wrote, but the third to be published. Do you want to tell us that story? Because I find that fascinating. Yes, it's it's a long and winding road. And I, I think often I'll talk to, to students or aspiring writers, and they'll ask, like, how long did such and such take? And I'll have to explain that nothing getting published is not like an arrow straight and true being fired across the sky (laughs) that in fact there's a lot of wrong turns and dead ends and doubts along the way so um, this novel which I began writing in 2007 um, finished it by the time I graduated got an agent and it went out on submission in 2009 in the fall of 2009 Um, and it came close to selling but did not um, and close only matters and horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was, I mean, I was devastated. Um, but I also knew that sort of larger forces were at work, the Great Recession, the rise of the ebook. Like there was a lot of uncertainty in the publishing industry. Um, not that there isn't now as well, but that's sort of what was going on. And so they, my, my agent at the time kept trying to submit it. Um, but eventually I had to start working on other books. Um, and I went on to publish, um, Deceit and Other Possibilities, a short story collection and A River of Stars. Um, but all that time I, you know, I would return to the manuscript and I would, uh, of Forbidden City and try to address it or fix it or, you know, I, I just couldn't quit it. It was a story <laughs> that I believed in, um, that kept tugging back at me. And so when, uh, a River of Stars sold in 2016. Uh, my my new agents turned it into a two-book deal. So um, A River of Stars, the, my editor read the whole manuscript, and Forbidden City, it was the first 50 pages. Um, and let me tell you, though, it's it's been written, rewritten many times from the, the ground up. So, um, I, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like how much, how much did it change from that 2009 version that almost sold to what we hold in our hands today? I mean, very different. (laughs) Um, the, I mean, and, but again, I don't think of it as wasted time or effort because I needed to write those other pages to write the book that's now in our hands. Um, and uh, but for example, some of the probably one of the primary changes is um, in that original version, the Chinatown portion was maybe 30 percent of the book instead of just oh the wow and epilogue. Oh wow! Yeah. There, was, there, there was there was there were gangsters. There was I mean there were many there was a lot going on and so probably so, too many things. Maybe that can make it to another book. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but but and, and then I think another um, important difference uh, or revision that came about did not happen till very late in sort of the life cycle of the book was figure out who narr- May the narrator is addressing. Um, and it's a little bit of a mystery in the book that gets revealed closer to the end. But once I understood who she was talking to and why. Uh, it lent a particular urgency to the novel. And, um, I, you know, I've heard from some early readers that just, yeah, their their reaction from discovering who she's talking to. Yeah, 
Yeah, I can definitely see that, and we're not going to give it away. <laughs> no, no, no spoilers here. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you know then when when it was done? When you've when you've worked on a project for that long, how do you know when? Okay, this is it. This is ready to go out there. Well, by the time I was working with my editor, um, that was when we got we had a sense where I've done all I can, right? Oh. With, with, like the final edits were in some sometime last year. So a project that began in the summer of 2017 that ended in the summer fall of um, 2021. Um, but, but I will say this: each time I wrote a major revision and sent it to an agent or to, to friends, it was the best I thought I could do at the time, right? Like it, it, all books are a snapshot in time. And I've actually, I know someone who, who, who wrote a novel and it was reprinted five times. And each time it was reprinted, she changed something. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that, that sometimes the temptation to continue revising is there. Um, I think maybe you stop when this is going to sound unromantic when you're sick of it and when you've fallen in love with another project. Yeah. I th you're not the first person to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you just can't look at it again. <laughs> yeah. So what project did you fall in love with? Well, I worked on um, the short stories that appeared in my collection and also um, a river of stars, uh, which is, about two very pregnant Chinese women uh, on the lam from a maternity tourism center. I called it a pregnant Chinese Selma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember hearing about that book. I didn't get a chance to read it, but now I'm going to have to go check it out. So yeah. <laughs> that sounds like so much fun and very different from, the, yes, from Forbidden yeah. City. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you've worked in so many different writing fields and genres. So journalism, historical novel, contemporary novel, short story. I have to ask, do you have a favorite? Well, I have 10, 10-year-old uh, twin sons. And much as I would never say who my favorite is, because I don't have a favorite, <laughs> um, I do not have a favorite genre. Uh, I'll, I, I'll say they're all my favorites. They're so, all your favorites. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I think each genre helps me excel at the other. Um, my journalism taught me to write daily and on deadline and to be able to work with editors. So that's, that's great for fiction. And with fiction, um, my journalism experience, uh, with, with journalism, my fiction experience has taught me how to think about character and setting and, a narrative arc, whereas my earliest attempts at journalism kind of read like court transcripts. It was just a series of quotes, and then it ended. <laughs> so now I'm much more likely to think about arc um, mm -hmm. and, and to, to go at things more artfully. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to, to work in all these uh, genres. And now short story is, to me, short story is hard. It's hard to get a complete story arc in, into the short story. And so a lot of them, you have the short stories that are just sort of the um, moment in time and not, right. a, and not a complete story. So which, which ones are yours? Which kind are yours? 
Well, I do think that a short story is closer to poetry uh, than a than a novel because it does turn on language and a moment. Um, but I, I think for me, I'm satisfied when I write short stories and when I read short stories that there's a sense of resonance, that perhaps there's a mini arc, let's say, right. and you get the feeling that action is continuing after the last page, that the author is not going to write out for you, but that there's that feeling, that sensation, that, that sense of opening up again. Um, you know, it sounds paradoxical, like their needs, the ending needs to uh, be satisfying, unexpected, um, but inevitable. But at the same time, it has to have the sense of, 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 uh, of like a bell continuing to ring. Mm. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Vanessa Waugh, author of Forbidden City. Vanessa, I'd love to hear some of the Forbidden City today. Would you like to read Thank you for so us? Much. Yes, definitely. So I'll be reading two excerpts. Uh, first, a bit from the prologue, and then another scene from The Day May Leaves Her Village. Forbidden City. The chairman is dead. September 9th, 1976. Outside, the people of Chinatown are cheering. They light firecrackers and beat pots and pans, chanting as they march three floors below the window of my apartment in San Francisco. Their signs say, smash the emperor and smash the party. Strips of paint spoil the sweep and curve of the characters, bleeding as if shot. The cheering swells, the revelers giddy with rice wine and easy victory. No longer will they whisper the chairman's name, afraid of his reach here across the ocean to America. No longer will they invoke his name to scare their children or as a curse against their enemies. They didn't hate the chairman at first. None of us did. In the beginning, he was the beginning. He dared to make the sun and moon shine in new skies, to end hunger and superstition in China, to end all that made us weak. The radio crackles with another update, calling him father of the Chinese revolution, an obscure peasant who died one of history's great revolutionary heroes. Despite criticism from other party leaders, he ordered the Great Leap Forward, ultimately causing widespread disruption and food shortages. Throughout his years in power, he toppled one rival after another in the party. In the Cultural Revolution, he risked throwing the country into chaos. I switched off the radio, shaken each time I am reminded how those outside of China knew more and knew more quickly than the people within. So that's from the prologue um, in, in 1976. And now I'll take us back um, to 1965. And um, my character, May, is uh, leaving to report for duty in the Capitol. At dawn, Ma filled our wooden tub with hot water. She hadn't bathed me in years and wouldn't have done so again until my wedding day. A few meters away, my sister slumbered. Later, I'd wonder if they might have been pretending their parting gift to offer me the privacy I never had there. Ma squatted behind me and poured ladles of water over my head, the scent of dust and sweat rising off in the steam. The drops trickled down my nape, my shoulders, my chest, every part of me cherished. I leaned into her hands. Her breathing became ragged, and I felt her trembling through my body 
until we were both shaking. Little May, she murmured. When I tried to turn around, she gripped my shoulders. The water in the tub had gone lukewarm, and I shivered the hairs raised on the back of my neck and arms. Ma, I asked. She didn't answer. She dried me in circling strokes. Her hands slowed as if to delay our parting. It was the tenderness I'd always craved from her. Though she must have heard the fear in my voice, she couldn't face me. Not then. Maybe not ever again. She would no longer warn me about fox fairies, shapeshifters who roam the twilight to lure travelers, of disappeared girls, runaway or raped, kidnapped or killed. She knew that she had no choice but to give me up, I can now see, and didn't want me thinking about the dangers ahead. In that moment, though, I hardened against her, against my fear and my anger. She couldn't help me, and I didn't need her. The picture of the chairman on the wall seemed to nod in the flickering light. He alone would protect me on this journey. Ma helped me step into pants and a tunic that she had patched and pounded clean in the river. She braided my hair into a coil. I gave in to the gentle tugging, into the mesmerizing firelight, hoping that I would be transformed like the braid, intricate and beautiful and strong as a model revolutionary. Shifting my eyes, I tried to hold still to keep from disturbing my mother's work. It was an hour spent on me alone for what seemed like the first time in my life. I was, the aunties had muttered, the, the officials would realize his error, that I would never leave the village. Behind their words, I understood they were asking, why not my daughter? I, but I was bound for the world where the revolution quickened, and I might find others like me, where my dreams might be recognized and accepted, and my worth wasn't measured only in the sons I bore. After she tied off the braid with a red string, I reached onto the shelf for the cracked leather pouch where she kept a set of eight wooden bees carved into plum blossoms. The distinctive dowry bees were her most treasured possession. I hesitated. The ma couldn't look me in the eye. I wouldn't allow her fear to become mine. I would take what I deserved. When I passed her a bead to adorn my braid, she didn't protest. Our hands lingered together. I didn't know how long I'd be gone, days or weeks or months. Gazing into my mother's wrinkled face, I realized that she once been my age, leaving her family to marry a man she had never met. She didn't know she would endure beatings from her husband, endure the curse of daughters, the death of sons, and swallow suffering as often as air. If she had known, would she have left her village? That was how we survived, by not knowing what was ahead. She pressed a wooden cup into my hand, a murky brew that gave off the smell of boiled pond scum. Sipping it, I winced my tongue curling back on itself. She pushed it toward me again, and I half gagged. What's this? Instead of answering, she handed me a pouch filled with tiny lumps the color of bone, their stench even more intense than what she brewed. The earthy scent reminded me of Dong Kwai, the golden flowers and sturdy roots we gathered every autumn. A desperate neighbor had come asking for it after she'd given birth twice within a year. It helped to keep a baby from taking hold. After I started my women's slow, Ba warned me against walking by myself at dusk, telling me to bolt from men who got too close. Why, he never said, but I understood. The curves that made me clumsy and set my running off kilter also invited the attentions of men who would ruin me. Drink this every morning, Mano said. I finished the brew and set down the bowl. Every morning, I repeated, then swirled my tongue against my teeth to get rid of the sour, bitter taste. 
The party's jeep arrived with a groan and rattle. As the hen squawked, Ba climbed off the bed, ladled me a bowl of porridge, and dropped in thick slices of salted turnips. I ate while standing, holding the bowl close to my face. He did, too. My father's fingers were the finest part of him, nimble whether mending a basket or plucking a radish. As a teenager, he'd left for the provincial capital to make his fortune. Although he'd wanted to work in a textile factory, he returned a year later, missing his little finger, a failure that still defined him and our family in the village. He turned away and coughed, wiping at his mouth. My family never said anything about his cough, yet another ailment among us that lingered and festered, like the sores that never quite healed, the scratch that persisted, the irritation in our eyes that went on for so long we forgot we lived any other way. I stared at his hand, the smear of blood undeniable, but when I looked up, he wordlessly ordered me to ignore it. I set down my bowl, unable to finish more than a few bites. Difficult as this life was, it was all I had ever known. When Ma brushed down stray hairs at the crown of my head, my resolve disappeared and the urge to cling to my parents overwhelmed me. Ba lifted my elbow to lead me to the door. Gentle, not rough, this gesture gave me the strength to leave. And that was Vanessa Wa reading from Forbidden City. How did you, like, May is such a fully drawn character, and I'm just... How did you get to know her? Over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think um, part of it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being flipped, but that's, that's honest truth. Um, but I think part of it also came from, I think initially she was a quite reactive character, sort of buffeted along. Um, but I began to think about what it you know, just how determined teenagers are, you know, then and now, right? And that even you look at Gen Z taking on climate change, like they, 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 you know, there's a period of time where it's like quite tumultuous in your girlhood when, you know, you're not fully grown yet, but yet you kind of dream of these, these other, uh, of a life that's different from the one you've always known. And, um, in particular, I think you mentioned the vicious, viciousness within the dance troupe um, and how the, the, the girls deal with each other just in terms of rivalries or, you know, the struggle sessions um, and, and that sort of the consequences from all of that. And, and in some ways, again, you, you different contexts, but there is this dynamic that can arise when, when people are all competing for the same man, for the same thing, and sort of in a, a patriarchy where uh, they don't have much, you know, power. There's limits to their power. Um, what power they have, they might use to turn on each other. Um, and so kind of understanding May and how she survived all that, um, but also May's acknowledgement that she didn't always, you know, she sometimes behaved like the self-absorbed teenager that she was um, before, but, but also that, you know, she gradually came to come to disillusionment in her time with the chairman. Um, and that's also part of growing up. Uh, again, regardless of the context, like there's the dreams and ideals we have when we're young and how, you know, how they might change as we begin to understand like the reality that we are told or that, you know, others around us believe in is, is not the one that, 
that uh, that you want to believe too. I think what makes her so interesting and so that draws the reader in so much is that she is at the same time both a victim and completely acting within her own agency with her own agency. Yes. You know, both of those things are going on and and she's she's the hero of the or heroine of the story but she's also in you know can be a villain in some ways you know could be looked at i mean she's not she's not black or white she's very much gray <laughs> yes yes exactly <laughs> yeah and that's hard to pull off because um because it's a fine line because the reader still needs to identify with and root for the character, which you do at the same time, realizing that they are so human and make mistakes. And it's, it was hard to read sometimes the, the parts, the, um, what was the girl's name who was sort of her enemy? Oh, a mid, mid, midnight chance. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I just, Oh, I just wanted, I wanted one of the adults to like step in and stop Midnight Chang from being so horrible to everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's that thing where if, um, that, you know, keeping them, uh, keeping the rivalries keeps them sort of from rising up, right? Like you see that everywhere, not just with teenagers, but anywhere it's like, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's interesting that, as you say, that no one stepped in, um, but it's because it was, not in their interest to step in. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. So um, you, we talked a little bit about um, the publishing, you know, how this book got published, af you know, after even though it was written first. But but your path to publishing, as you also mentioned, was not straight. Now, you were working as a journalist. Do you think that helped you to attract um, an agent and a publisher for your novels. I, I think I think it did. Um, it certainly all along the whole like food chain. Let's say if I was querying a literary magazine, I think being a journalist helps make you stand out. And then certainly with um, you know once it came to the stage where I had a book and I could interest an agent that way through a query letter, and then so too with. Um, with, with my editor, with, with editors. Uh, but that, that's not to say that um, journalism, and, and journalism does prepare you in many ways to write fiction, but it's, it's not the same. There's, um, you, there's a filtered consciousness uh, not, and not a neutral lens um, with fiction, that there's a sort of voiciness that, um, that is something I had to learn. Mm. Um, I, I remember in, in grad school, I was presented a draft of, of this novel or, or it was a, a section and the professor said, this is reportage. <laughs> and he meant that as a, he meant that as, not as, like he meant that as a flaw. And I wanted to like leap up and say, democracy dies in darkness. Right? Like, but, but you know, it's true that journalism is the fourth estate. It's important in its own way, but it is not fiction. So right, I, I had right. to kind of, um, that was something I had to, you know, you, you get established as a journalist and you kind of have to start all over when you're, you're building your, your creative writing career. Um, that, that said, I, I wrote short stories uh, all the time since I was a kid and 
through high school and college. And so that really, being a fiction writer was my identity, but then I fell in love with journalism in college. And so that was what I was focused on initially for a couple of years before I returned to, to journalism and, and, you know, wrote on weekends or at lunch or, or at night um, until I finally, um, I was on this reporting trip to, to South Korea and I said to someone, one of the other reporters, like, oh, you know, I've always wanted um, to write a book. She looked at me and said, then write a book. And she was just making small talk and like easy for her to say, right? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> um, just do it. <laughs> yeah. But but it resonated with me. It made me realize that if this, if I truly wanted to do this thing I'd always said I wanted to do, I had to figure out a way to center it in my life. Um, and, and for me, and people take different paths. For me, I decided uh, to to apply to an MFA program at uh, UC Riverside where I could get funding, you know, time, resources, mentorship, all of that. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, like even from the time I was like sending stories out to journals and hoping I would get published, like sometimes every time I got that self-addressed stamped envelope back, I knew I'd gotten a rejection, right? <laughs> um, but then every time where I thought like, should I just throw in the towel? Is this pointless? I'm shouting into the void. They're usually would be some sort of crumb, maybe in the form of an honorable mention in a contest or a, a rejection with a please submit, resubmit um, another story kind of invitation. So, um, you know, but actually I, I do want to say what kind of helped me survive all that was, yes, determination and stubbornness, <laughs> but also uh, literary community um, in the form of people I'd met um, at conferences and we formed writing groups later and then uh, people from grad school or um, I belong to the writer's grotto in San Francisco. It's a sort of writer's community and, and, and collective. And so um, there many days will be hard, but then when there's um, opportunities to celebrate, it's all the sweeter to, you know, to be celebrating with your community. I was going to ask you about that because in, in the acknowledgments in your book, you talk about um, the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, the Community of Writers, mm -hmm. Aspen Words, Hedgebrook, Tin House Workshop, Mendocino's Coast Writers Conference, Warren Wilson MFA programs, uh, etc., cetera, and, um, and this Writers Grotto. And so it, I thought you really have worked to build a, a community of writers and, um, what you know you you're talking you just mentioned why that helps you keep going but does it ever take time away from your own writing to be to be doing all of that yeah i mean i think i think when i you know talk to uh, aspiring writers and, and encourage them to um to to get connected in literary community whether that's volunteering or attending readings or organizing readings um it's true. You writing still needs to be at the center of your life, um, but at the same time, I think every time I've helped someone um, or done a favor, let's say that I feel like it comes back to me like a, a hundredfold. <laughs> like that. I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to call it karma, but it's true. If you you put good energy out, then it returns to you, and. Um, that said, I, I think there's ways in which you can preserve your time and still be helpful. For example, if someone asks me for a favor, maybe I can't do it. I, I like I have to do a, a draw a hard line um, during a particular time, but then I can think of just the right person instead. 
And every time someone asks me a favor, if I'm not able to, to, to do it for them more, you know, very, very often, I always try to come up with a, with another solution for them. And I think in that way, um, it's ideal actually, if the, the other person is also excited about the opportunity. And uh, I think, I don't know, it's, it's like being a literary matchmaker. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. I also, you know, personally, as I, you know, I had a book that I worked on for years and years, and I just got too busy in my uh, my real job. But um, I would go to I, I went to a number of writing conferences or writing workshops over the years. And then at some point I thought, you know, really what I should do is just set aside the time and just write, yeah. you know, and do kind of a self-created uh, writing workshop. But unfortunately, I never did that. But, but, but you also do really learn a lot in these workshops, and now you're teaching in them. What are some of the things that you teach in your workshops? I well, I, so I'm uh, I, I teach. Uh, I'm working. Warren Wilson is a low residency program. So um, at the beginning of uh, the semester, if if not for the pandemic, we would meet for for ten days and. Um, we would do, a, there'd be craft talks, lectures, workshops. Um, and then over the course of the semester, this semester I'm working with two students um, on their, in their final semesters who are putting together their thesis. Um, it's these, you know, we exchange the, you know, critique and the long letter and analytical, um, um, analytical um, things. And then um, I'm teaching at the Sewanee Writers Conference again this summer. There'll be workshops. I'm also doing a craft talk about how foraging helped sharpen my writer's gaze. Um, foraging is something that I picked up during the pandemic. It, it helped me survive and um, become a better writer. So, okay. yeah. Foraging like, yeah. for food or f what? What? Yes. <laughs> yes. It, there's, there's food everywhere if you know where and, and when to look. Um, anything from miner's lettuce to the, I see early plums coming out now, a mint. There's, um, it, I mean, that's, we were all trapped at home, right? And it was really a, an opportunity for me to explore and understand the landscape in new ways. And actually, it's, it's raining out here in the Bay Area, and I'm kind of excited because maybe another crop of mushrooms are going to come up. <laughs> we were kind of fearful uh, when, when it was, it, we had sort of a drought this winter. But yeah, it, it's been delightful, and um, it's helped me become a better writer and I was excited to be able to write a craft talk around it. Oh, that sounds like fun. Although I will say, as a kid growing up with a dad who got into foraging for a while and did, we ate some really bizarre things that I would never <laughs> want to repeat. Uh, there was this, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of this writer back in the 60s who wrote these books. Oh, about, um, uh, yeah, the the purple, the wild experience. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the hump of the wild asparagus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, so we ate we ate wild asparagus. We ate acorns, ground acorns into some kind of veggie patty Red. thing. Right. We yeah. we ate nettles, which are the worst thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I found it. It's called it's called, um, called stalking the wild asparagus by Yule Gibbons. Yes, Yule Gibbons. Yes, yes. that yes. was it. Oh man, I think I still have those books. My dad's yeah. been gone for fifty years, and I think I still. <laughs> No, 40 years, sorry, 40 years, and I think I still have those books somewhere. But um, so, 
But there's really great things too. At least in Iowa, we we can you can forage blackberries, mulberries. Um, in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, there were wild strawberries. Oh so. yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to try a mulberry sometime. Oh um, well, come actually, on out to Iowa. <laughs> I will. I will. There's there's actually a wonderful um, kind of social media star. She goes by the handle Black Forager, uh, Alexis Nicole Nelson. She's like since been written up like in the New York Times, the New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a chance to interview her for Outside Magazine, and she, you know, kind of she's just really exuberant and has all these recipes. And if any listener is interested. Uh, put aside that stocking the wild asparagus and, and go online. So. Uh, the other thing that's very common around here that is purslane. I don't know if it grows out there. But... Oh, yeah, they have that out here, too. Yeah. I haven't tried that. I've had miner's lettuce and, and chickweed, okay. um, which are delicious in their own way. <laughs> and, of course, dandelion greens. Yes, are, yes. Are very easy to find. But, yeah, yes. oh, that's so cool. So um, we only have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask about um, you talked about these trips that you had made to China, Hong Kong, uh, Korea, South Korea for um, in your journalism career. What kind of articles or what kind of uh, what were you writing about? I, I wrote about a range of topics. Um, so in China, I was writing about the rise of modern China, sort of uh, how villages were hollowed out and everyone was going to the cities and how these factories that were uh, opened up by Chinese Americans sort of, you know, going back to the, to the land they'd left to sort of give back, whether in schools or factories. Um, in, uh, in South Korea, I, I did a whole uh, segment for Frontline World. It was a, uh, on TV about citizen journalism, about people who – there was a website – for a while, that was called Oh My News, um, that that everyday people were contributing sort of opinion pieces and articles, and it kind of helped um, change the course of a presidential election. Um, uh, in in Burma, I wrote about um, microfinance, and I will always remember going to this village where this sort of duck, this duck farmer had was building a better life for her family, and she got she took my hand and guided me to the baskets of filled with eggs. Um, so, I, I mean, I always feel honored when people trust me uh, enough to share their story. Um, and it feels like my way of making a difference. And and, um, and, and, and I feel so fortunate to be able to do so. And do you speak Mandarin or Taiwanese or both? Yeah, I speak, I yeah. speak uh, Mandarin uh, poorly, but enough to get around, um, and, and, and enough to have uh, sort of interesting conversations. I I did a piece for the New York Times about this conversation I had with a caddie, who you know I was chatting with her, um, and she you know she, at first she's you know asking like oh were your grandparents rich, and I was like oh well, and then were your parents rich, and then sort of the capper was when she got to me and she's like are you rich, and then I'm like are we making conversation or is this like her way of maneuvering for a bigger tip uh. <laughs> or is this, yeah. Or is this how she survived? Like the only one in her, everyone else in her family was still a farmer and she was a cabbie. So it was just a really interesting discussion about class and, and wealth and, you know, the relationship between diasporic Chinese and, and those back in, in the homeland. And so, yeah, I, I mean, everything is a, 
opportunity for, for different interactions and in, 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 in a conversation. Well, we could we could go into a lot more detail on this. I've um, in my other life, um, the, my company has we have partner factories in China. And one thing that probably you probably know this, but a lot of people don't know is that there is actually as the infrastructure in inland China is growing, more factories are moving back so that the people don't all have to come to the villages to um, Guangdong province um oh interesting yeah. yeah yeah that's that's starting to happen and um so it'll be interesting to see where where that leads so, yes yeah yeah <laughs> well we always quote close with a quote and it's really interesting because i had looked this up before you actually said almost the exact same thing so this was the quote i was going to close with from Deshan Stokes, who is a indigenous American activist, said people turned against each other cannot turn against those responsible. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that yeah. really sums up kind of what, what happens in um, the, the dynamics at play in my novel. In Forbidden City. So thank you so much for being with us, Vanessa. It was such a, a delight to talk to you this morning. <laughs> and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.